HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And me, your mama, Bobby Conforto. Hi, mom. It is a pleasure to be back with you folks. We've taken quite the extended vacation, um, but we are getting back at it and we're looking forward to, to coming to you guys every week with new episodes and yeah we're reinvigorated we're all jazzed up and ready to talk about grief baby (laughs) and it's not as if we haven't been thinking about processing we've been thinking about it all along yeah of course um so yeah a lot's been going on um you know personally and in a worldly sense um and we just kind of wanted to take this opportunity in this episode, this hour with you all to kind of just talk about some of that stuff just between the two of us before we kind of get back on our regularly scheduled programming, talking to guests each week and such. So what's been, what's new, Bobby? What's been going on? Well, I'm trying to remember when we were here. I guess it was the end of April, right? And today is July 1st. Mm -hmm. So in that time, we were getting ready for a big trip. It started off as a family trip and, um, yep. It's a lot when you have a business and you know this too, to kind of bring things to a close and close up your loose ends and tie everything up. And then it seems like forever to get out and finally you get on the plane and we went to Rome. We started in Rome and um, that was quite a treat. It was a place that you have loved for, for many years and you wanted to share with me and with Rob. And I was so glad you did. And I was so glad to have a tour guide. Because, uh, you know, that was really, really exciting. Not just a tour guide, but to turn us on to all the most wonderful aspects that, through your eyes of how you see Rome 
And I thought it was beautiful and magnificent. So we took a trip to go backtrack a little bit. Um, we left you and you in Italy and Rob and I went to France and we spent two more weeks there. Like in the movie Home Alone. They just <laughs> left me. All of a sudden I woke up and I was alone and I go, wow. No, not exactly. What a bad place to wake <laughs> up in. <laughs> so, um, and then we went off to France and, um, and we came back in the kind of second week in um, May and um, adjustment coming back was real. I found it a big thing. It wasn't just jet lag. It was, um, I kept thinking I was in Europe. I, every time I woke up in the morning, I felt like I was in a, a grand hotel in Europe or something. It was just a weird thing. <laughs> but I was trying to figure out a way to keep the things that I learned on my trip and to let them last. And I guess the most important thing, my intention about going away was to have, to be present and to be mindful. And I feel like, and to quiet down a little bit. I can't exactly say that I did that in Europe. I found myself kind of excited and anxious at times but because it was so overstimulating and so amazing yeah but when I got back I really did endeavor and have succeeded in kind of slowing down and just I stopped um I used to be a news person and I would put the news on in the morning and then at night at dinner time and I don't haven't watched it since I got back I've been sitting in the quiet I've been listening to classical music um I just feel like I tried to hold on to that that mindful um quiet, present approach, just noticing the birds and noticing things that I'm not usually noticing. So that's where I've been. And and then we went through another bit of a journey, which I'll talk about in a little while. But what about you? What you've been doing for the last two months? Um, well, I after I got left home alone in Rome, <laughs> I tried to make my way back somehow, figure out how to go on without my family um, as an only child in a foreign city. Um no, I had a great trip. I I spent some time alone and thinking about my life and some stuff that's happened, kind of really trying to process some of the incredible traumatic experiences that have happened over the past couple of years. You know, I think like with um, COVID and the aloneness of that and the just scariness of the world, like it's just kind of been like, okay, let's get through one day at a time. And, you know, just, and then finally kind of getting to go away a little bit felt like some time to sit and really think about everything that's kind of transpired and happened and where I hope my life can go next. And that's a huge privilege to be able to suss that out in general. And especially from such a beautiful location, I felt extremely privileged and grateful for that. Um, and then I went to go see some of my closest friends who live in Tuscany and that was an incredibly beautiful experience, but also really, intense and difficult because they have a really hard situation going on with a parent who is suffering from dementia and in kind of end of life stages. And so that was a very bittersweet experience because it was very bitter, obviously, what they're going through, but sweet to be with them. So um, really intense and like in a lot of ways. And I guess since I get got back, I'm still kind of just, you know, working through all of that stuff that... Uh, you know, sometimes people's lives that we love really become a big part of our lives. So <clears throat> yeah, I've spent a lot of time still continually dealing with that. And, um, you know, just trying to handle the intensity of a, what seems to be a crumbling mm. democracy with, without 
being like, you know, overly alarmist, like our democracy is crumbling. I'm sure there's been a lot of times in American history and in the short history of America where people have felt as though things are going in the wrong direction because they often are. Um, But this feels very upsetting and scary. And I think, you know, with capitalism and ever since the industrial revolution, since like our output started really ruining the planet, it's just an accelerated kind of way of of thinking that things are actually really crumbling. Um, well, they're because heartbreaking. human beings. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like, the environment is truly now being destroyed. And, oh. like, our oh. rights as people are in, in, under constant threat. And, it, and, you know, violence is so prevalent. And it doesn't mm. seem like there's anybody who's in charge or who's really looking out for our interests. And if they are, it seems like they don't really have a say. Um, <clears throat> so that's really difficult, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it really makes me want to move to Italy, where, unfortunately, the climate crisis is the same, but there are way less guns. And, um, you know, the political situation is different. So that's kind of how I feel, yeah. Well, so I know you shared this with me. I hope it's okay to share it. Um, well, I am now. <laughs> um, that you were so isolated and alone in COVID and that when you went to Italy, you were part of a family and a community and, and what a different feeling that was. Yeah. I mean, totally. Like, you know, I have historically been a very lonely person, even though I've always had a lot of friends and really good social life, but I still, you know, was an only child, just been a, a kind of ever present feeling. So, and then just like, you know, intensified during COVID and many of my closest friends like moved away and, uh, you know, just having to isolate myself because I run a small business and having to like constantly really think about like my risk of yeah. being sick because I can't necessarily afford it. So yeah, like it's been a very strange and lonely two and a half years. So being in Italy really just mm. felt like being a normal functioning person with like all sorts of felt like the lights got turned on, you know, and it's hard to come back and I love New York. I feel lucky if I had to come back anywhere that I'm coming back to New York City, which is like, in my opinion, the most wonderful place ever. But, um, you know, it's hard adjusting and coming back. But, it, you know, I think when we travel and the best of like you were saying about like trying to take some things about your experience with you and really like apply them, like good travel. And if you're open minded and looking and searching for something can, you know, some of those things can stick with you. So I'm trying to just think about, oh, right, like community is super important to me. And, and friendship is super important to me. And those things are more important than other things that I might have been prioritizing over the past couple of years. So, you know, just trying to really like spend some time thinking about how to get back to that yeah. place. So food wise, you must have had an unbelievable uh, journey and education and exposure and what kind of things stand out in your mind of the, the most significant? Well, great question, Bobby. Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, like Italy is probably one of the best places to eat in the whole world. And, um, you know, Rome, as you know, we experienced together, has some of the most delicious food in all of Italy, in my opinion. It's got all the hits. It's got the best pastas, pizza, like, delicious pastries, wonderful coffee. Like everything is just so great in Rome. You can eat, but I think you can eat better in Rome than really anywhere in Italy. Um, but, and then Puglia was like, you know, for, for fresh, delicious seafood and like just really simple, like yummy stuff, like so fun. 
But to me, like the my best food memories will always be when you're with people. So like being in Tuscany and just cooking in the outdoor garden with my friends is was like by far and hmm. away the best part um, and the best food memories. Even just like, you know, my best friend and I would take like a bunch of different cheeses and pickles down to the garden like before dinner and like we'd each be like okay let's make this perfect bite snack now right. and so like to me like that's the best right. you know like right. just like hanging out with him and making the perfect snack bites or like you know watching the kids eat a burger or like making pizzas on the grill and experimenting even if they didn't come out great you know like that's yeah, the best yeah, to me yeah. always mm-hmm. like when you're mm-hmm. simple stuff and cooking with your hands and cutting things with a spoon because you left the knife upstairs like right. that's to me that's the best so yeah. like everything else comes and goes but those things are really lasting what about you well I would say that my uh, I was very excited by going to France and I had really thought about it ahead of time and tried to and Paris was kind of an overwhelming thought. I tried to go into some of the um, good blogs, you know, Infatuation and David Leibowitz and things like that. And to to be quite honest, I I love French food. I feel like I was French in a previous lifetime. So the the provincial taste palette is mine. It, it's just what I love to cook and all that stuff. But I liked the food in Rome the best, maybe because you took us to the greatest restaurants. I also thought they were reasonable. And in Paris, it was downright scary to think about where I was going to go because it just seemed like some restaurants were so haute cuisine and so expensive and, Mm -hmm. as you sometimes call it, tweezer food. And so I really didn't want Mm. that. That's not what I wanted. I wanted real food. So my best food experiences were really the markets. And you and I had been, I had visited you in France. I think we've talked about it before, some years back, 10 years ago or whatever. And the first time I went to a real market, I almost fainted. You know, because yeah. I was like, I almost passed out because it's so exciting to see there isn't just a few producers who bring their vegetables. There's countless, one after the next, and one is more beautiful than the next. So kidney flowers and artichokes, the most gorgeous artichokes I've ever seen was asparagus season. You know, this is in France. Ah. We were in Provence. Um, and and then the tapenade, the tapenade, tapenade the big bowls of bowls and bowls of um, green olives and green olive tapenade and a garlic spread that I have never had in my life. Anything like this. Wow. It's really garlic tapenade. That's the best way I can describe it. Somehow they took the zing out of the garlic and made it just like you would make a tapenade. Delicious. Unbelievable. And what they can bring down to the markets. I mean, they had rotisserie ducks and geese and chickens and you know right there how they set it up because we had walked yeah like in cassis we were walking in the village in the morning and got a, our cappuccino and our i mean not a cappuccino our espresso and our croissant and then all of a sudden the same spot there were hundreds of vendors that had you know unbelievable displays i've never seen anything like it in my life so that was the biggest turn on to me and i think of that's the thing that excited me the most you could sit there and eat and the cheeses the cheeses in France mm. are un. There is, I don't think there's probably anywhere in the world that has that kind of a cheese display like that. I mean, they had literally one vendor would have three hundred kinds of cheeses. You know, I That's like amazing. I like goat cheese, so you know, two hundred goat cheeses. But and then we learned about how you know they want to teach you, and of course, I was a little embarrassed. I thought that I, I spoke French in high school. I even studied it. You were nice enough to get me the the babble. Um, 
training, you know, to learn French. And I was all ready. I, you know, I have an accent, a good accent. I, I have a beret. I was all ready to, <laughs> to speak French. I was all ready to speak French. A striped shirt. No, but no. The minute I opened my mouth, I went, Ugh! So it was, that was hard. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed of that, I felt. But to be quite honest, I forgive myself because it was so overstimulating. I was taking in so many things, you know, the nature, the art. I mean, we kind of went on an art tour all the way from Rome, you know, into Nice, where we saw Chagall and Matisse and um, Picasso Museum and the Rodin Museum and just the museums. And so I was overwhelmed. And the beauty, you know, the rivers, the Tiber River in um, Rome and uh, the uh, Seine, we were staying right in the middle of the Seine River. So there was so much to take on. That was about all my little brain could handle. So when it came to speaking, I just couldn't do it, you know? So that's um, okay. Yeah, that's okay. But it was an amazing thing. It was, I kept saying it felt like an honor to travel. That's how I felt. Um, But I had one nice memory, which I wanted to share with you, is that in the markets, I remember grandma, who was from Yugoslavia, which we've told our listeners before, and her family lived on a farm. They had chickens and they also had a lace factory. And she said that every Saturday they would go, or Sunday, I don't know what day it was, or one day a week, they would go to the markets. And that they brought all their ware, their lace and their eggs and everything to the markets. And she always tells a story about being a little girl and getting lost once. And she was on her way to the market and she she got lost. She must have been going alone and she couldn't find her way. So I kind of got a rush to that when I thought about the markets. And that, you know, markets in Europe are, it's really the community. I mean, we hope to do that here. You know, we have our farmers markets and many people come out, but not the whole community where I think of Europe. Yeah, it's definitely not how people shop here. Yeah, exactly. And it's unfortunate because I also think like the farmer's market, like everything else has been politically like kind of stigmatized and like divided as though shopping at the farmer's market is for like rich white liberals and stuff. And the fact of the matter is, is that like a lot of farmer's markets take you know, food stamps, a lot of the farmer's markets are um, actually, like, affordable. Like, if you get a bunch of dill at the grocery store, it's tiny and shriveled and yucky, and it's, like, three fifty. And if you go to the farmer's market and grab a bunch of dill, it's usually, like, two bucks. And, you know, right. and I just think, like, and some things are very expensive and maybe more expensive, but, like, food at the grocery store is fucking expensive yeah. as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it really is. And it's just, like... But, you know, we don't make, I don't know, that's a huge issue. It's a whole other subject. But farmer's market. It's just not how we, like, we weaponize, I think, like, one of the things just to, like, talk about the farmer's market issue in America is that we weaponize food in America. We, like, withhold it from people who have a lower income, create food deserts, make food full of chemicals, and push that on people and withhold people from having fresh food in general. So, yeah. like, a farmer's market and market culture in general is just like not really super available um, because we just, we choose to weaponize food and yeah. create, you know, huge disparities in class and it's, it's yeah. horrible. And food is one of the biggest ways in which that is like, is carried out. It's terrible because there should be a culture around just like, that is one thing that you really do realize when you're traveling. And I noticed it like in Puglia, like I made, a fabulous dinner with like langoustines and clam pasta and wine and stuff. And for everything that I got, 
including like a bottle of wine, it was like under $15, you know? Yeah. And including a bottle of wine. Right. And that's a pretty lavish amount of things, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's not like, oh my God, I'm so like, you know, that's not a brag. It's more like, it's so bad yeah. what we do. Right to food here. It's yeah. so bad. Like when you eat throughout Europe and especially France and Italy, of yeah, course, and yeah. Spain, like three countries that are out of many European countries that are really like wonderful places to eat. Um, it's not like so much of a luxury there. It's like a given that like food is part, just like healthcare right. is a given or you know, anything. It's like, life. these are basic yeah. like human things that like it, it shouldn't be an elitist thing to feel like you can get fresh vegetables, fresh vegetables. or meat. You're absolutely right. You know? I, I noticed that taking the train through France, it was farmland after farmland after farmland. It was unbelievable. And the value they yeah. place on food all over the entire country. It is for everybody. Yeah. It's wonderful and fresh and good and you could feel it. Yeah. And like certain things aren't allowed in it. Right. So even when you go to the grocery store and get packaged and, you know, processed foods they're not allowed to put like corn syrup in it they're not allowed to put certain chemicals in it like we just like really truly as part of like the greater narrative of what is so depressing about what's going on now like we basically are like you know our government anyone who's regulating anything or doing anything is like basically telling everyone to eat shit and die like that's essentially like the messaging whereas when you Mm. travel it's like to europe for instance there's a different feeling where it doesn't really feel like they're saying eat shit and die. No, they're saying value. We all value food. We love food. Let's share it. They're like eat fresh pasta and salad and then die (laughs) at an old age. Right, right. (laughs) But yeah, the markets are beautiful. So should we take a quick break and then come back and we'll talk about some of the other stuff that's been kind of happening in our lives? Sure. Okay, great. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. 
Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. And we're back. Bobby, so you have had, and I mean, a very upsetting for me as well, but it's more acutely, you know, really heartbreaking for you. You and Rob had a big loss last week. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. Well, some of um, our listeners may have heard my dog bark in some of the sessions by mistake. And um, we've had this uh, little doggy named Bo, who's a little brown poodle. And uh, she came to us in uh, 2010. 2010. And um, she was just lovely. She was sweet, sweet, lovely. And Rob added it up. She saw 10,000. She had 10,000 office visits because she was my therapy dog. And she would sit next to me and sit next to the clients. And each client she'd treat differently. Some of them she'd go and hide under the desk if she knew they didn't like dogs. And other ones she'd gaze up at them with love as if they were the only one. You know, people would leave think, oh, Bo loves me. Well, Bo loved everybody uh, um, differently, you know. And sometimes she'd hop up on the couch and sit and look out the window while we were in session. Um, but somebody commented to me yesterday. They said, you know, you must really miss Bo because you see 15 people a day. And I imagine that in between each person, your contact with her was healing and grounding. And it was. She'd roll over and I'd rub her little belly or we'd take a little walk outside for a second or so. Um, anyway, what happened was, is we got back from Europe and, um, we knew that Bo had some arthritis and she started to cough. I guess it's actually three weeks ago this weekend. And she just had this little cough and sounded weird. So we took her to the doctor and Rob went by himself and the doctor told him quite, um, shockingly that Bo had advanced lung cancer. So for the last three weeks, exactly, we have, um, accompany Bo to her, to her end. And, um, when beginning, because we believe that it's also a new beginning for her. Um, it was very rough, very, very rough because at night it felt like she would die almost every night. You know, she could barely breathe at night. And, and then in the morning she'd wake up and she'd eat and, um, she'd look at us and she'd be okay, kind of. So it was a rough three weeks. So rough as a matter of fact, that, um, the first week I was following her around every night you know, if she was under the bed, I was under the bed. If she was in the closet, I was with her. I would lie next to her, pet her. I thought that she needed me to comfort her, you know. And one night, um, about four o'clock in the morning, I went to lift her out from under the bed where she was, and I started to fall. And I started to back up, and I said, I'm going to drop the dog. I mean, this is terrible. So I kind of caught my fall. I fell. I screamed. You you were there that night. You know what it sounded like. It was a... a very scary. Very strong scream. And what happened is I ended up breaking my foot, my toe. So that toe represents something to me. It represents the fact that, particularly with animals, that we project onto people too what we think they need. We think they need us there every single second, every single minute. And the truth is that when a, a, a being is dying, they're pulling back and they don't need us every minute. And particularly animals, they... She didn't need me to follow her around. As a matter of fact, she needed to hide under the bed because she that's where she wanted to go to hide without people, without me. So I learned a big lesson and I have a feeling that toe is always going to twinge and I'm always going to think of that lesson. 
and remember that. You know, I knew it when I worked in hospice that um, just the way babies begin to see new things every day, the being that's dying is closing up every day. They're kind of going into their own capsule, you know, so that they can make their journey. And I wanted to be with her, but I realized I had to let her, let her go, you know. So it was a process. And um, actually, last week at this time, last Friday at this time, we made a decision to call hospice. And I was freaking out. I, I had every stage of grief. I had, um, you know, denial and bargaining and anger and, and depression all on the head of a pin. Because I guess I knew it was coming. And um, I fought. I said, we can't call hospice. I thought that I, it was my job to see her through like a brave soldier that, you know, that's what you do for family. You, you, you stick by them to the very, very end and you stick with them. But I realized that Bo needed some relief. She couldn't breathe. And it wasn't about seeing her to the end. It was about trying to give her a peaceful passage. So we did have hospice come in and they came last Saturday and um, it was another life lesson. You know, all the things I learned from my clients and working with people with loss, everything was coming into being because we talk a lot about ritual. And the minute I woke up, it wasn't even conscious. I woke up at like five in the morning. I started walking around our property and gathering flowers. And I found these vases and I very carefully, and Bo was watching me as I was doing this. I was taking one flower at a time and pruning it and snipping it and putting it in the vase. And I made these beautiful flower flower arrangements one was all white big beautiful white the other was all many many colors like 10 different colors I could find and um so we set it up outside on the patio where Bo and I used to sit all the time and we would sit there especially over the last three weeks I learned to really slow with her slow down with her and watch the birds and watch their flight and listen to the rustles of leaves because she was, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to soak up every bit of life those last three weeks. So I did it with her. So we went to that bench where her and I used to sit. And um, we set it all up for when the hospice person came. Um, Rob made a playlist of the most wonderful music. Um, for anybody that is ever interested, you know, please look up Donovan, Deep Peace. It's actually a Gaelic poem. It is the most powerful poem about, you know, wishing peace on, on someone particularly in this when they're dying so we played that and leave on helm and everything we could think of so i'm almost done i, I wanted to, so what happened was is that um the hospice person came the hospice person came and she was an angel of mercy she was the most lovely the minute she walked into the back porch Bo went over to her and kissed her nose just a little teeny kiss on the tip of her nose and it was Dr. Heather. She was so sensitive to exactly what Bo had been going through. She was trying to help me understand how Bo hadn't been breathing. And that's why this has been so hard for her, that she was trying to get breath. So I finally felt relief. I finally felt we are doing the right thing. I am helping Bo, you know, ease her, her pain and have a peaceful death. And I felt really good about it. And um, we had candles lit. And uh, what they do is they give the dog a sedative first, you know. And she was in her arms and she just really was just so, her bundle of fur. I mean, you know, Bo, she was the softest. So fuzzy. Fuzzy, sweetest curls, brown curls. And um, and then I felt her last heartbeat. And, um, you know, we listened to that deep piece over and over and over again, just imagining her energy go. The song talks about, the prayer talks about the winds. It talks about the south wind and the east wind and the west wind and the north wind. And just as she died, 
the biggest gust of wind came that we all just shivered. Wow. We said, oh, my goodness. The doctor started to cry because she said it was so powerful. It's like it just hit us. That's where Bo went in our belief system. You know, she, you know, she didn't go to heaven. She went into the wind. And uh, it was so powerful because we always used to look at the trees blow and watch the wind blow in the trees. So there she was now became the wind in the trees. So two minutes later, you showed up and you came through the back porch and you went right into the kitchen. And I didn't know what was going on because we were about to bury Bo. We have a, a nice backyard and we had a, prepared for her that we we're going to bury her. And all of a sudden I go in the kitchen and I see that you have brought five huge quarts of organic blueberries. You have puff pastry laid out. With Bo's picture sitting right there, you're rolling out the dough and you're making a friggin' blueberry pie. That pie meant so much to me because it, it taught me, again, that we have to weave through the sweetness of life in the bitterness of loss. That pie was so sweet. The smell, everything about it was so wonderful. Bye, and it was truly the intersection of food and grief. It was right there manifest. So while the pie was in the oven baking, we went and we had a very sweet burial. We, we read some lovely things, mostly from Mary Oliver. Again, we've read Mary Oliver on the on the show. If anybody has ever loves dogs, there's a book called Dog Songs by Mary Oliver, which is just profound. And we read several pieces from there. And then we ate blueberry pie. And in the morning, you and I woke up and we ate more blueberry pie. So I thank you, Zara. I thank you, Zara, because it really, it, it was just, I'll always remember that it's woven into the loss. It really is. So, so that's what I've been doing. And now I'm trying to learning how to live without bow. It's very hard. We, I mean, we talked with Diana Dietrich a couple of months ago about pet loss and, you know, just to revisit that, like it's kind of a disenfranchised loss because it's like not a human or, you know, maybe you feel strange talking to people who have lost parents or children or something being talking about a pet. And it is obviously very different than losing a parent or a child or a human, but it is like just, it's still really hard. It's it's okay to feel like really yeah. well, many, devastated many and grief stricken. Many about people it. have pets and they're very intimate. You know, they're part of your life. They walk in the bathroom with you, you know, they they lick the water yeah. from the shower, they sleep in the bed with you, they're very intimate. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah. And like, you know, for you and Rob, like you guys met a little bit later in life, not like super late in life, but what when you were like both like four around forty five, right? Mm -hmm. And you guys don't, you know, didn't have kids together, but you've, you know, you have pets and that's in a way been like your, your kids together. And it's just, it's, there's a lot that goes along with it. For me, I, I mean, I miss Bo terribly and I loved Bo, but also it was hard when I asked Rob if you were going to get another dog. And he, I don't know if you guys are, but he was like saying maybe not, because I don't know if we'll be able to walk it as like the years go on. And then for me, I was just like, oh my God, this is like so sad because of that. You know what I mean? Just thinking about time and <laughs> it passing. And yeah, so we had a big, we had a big loss, um, yeah. you, know, you know, for all of us. And it was interesting. My clients said some very funny things. They all wanted to know how Bo was and you know, they all, everybody asked and everyone had pets. So everybody related, you know, they cried about their own pets. They talked about their own losses. It was really special, you know, but people would say, 
you know, when she turned her head like that, I used to think that she was really listening. <laughs> so it was, you know, they felt like she had helped Aww. them, you know. Somebody she said, really she, she helped me feel comfortable here. The minute I walked in the door and I saw that little baby, it made me feel safe. So She was a very sweet lady. So when you guys I feel the wind, Bo is out there. Oh, she's so she was so cute. So do you like as I haven't had a pet in a really long time, but as someone who is like, you know, in the grieving process of losing a pet and it's like a weird thing because it's like not like it's a replaceable love per se, because, you know, each relationship with a pet is different. But it is like this thing of like when you lose a pet, you can get another pet. You know what I mean? And like, that's strange. But like, what do you think about when you think about that? Does it feel weird to even think about? Is it something that's like exciting to you? Is it something that's well, scary? I feel, I like, how do you feel things. about getting another pet? I remember reading a book way back in my career by Selma Freiberg about children. And the first chapter was about this little boy that, you know, they, he loses his dog. And his parents immediately, they don't want him to hurt. They don't want him to suffer. They go and get a puppy the very next day. And the little boy yeah. looks at them and she, he says, I want to feel what it's like to, to not have, you know, my doggy. I, I want to know what that's. I don't want a new doggy now to have to think about. So that's the yeah. first thought is that I think in grief, grief is about feeling the absence. And, 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 and I'm yeah. very much feeling it and letting myself feel it. And so I'm not, I'm not really thinking about another pet. But yeah. I love dog energy. So this morning I found myself watching the dogist. I think he has a, 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 a Instagram. Instagram and, you know, he rescues dogs. And, and I found myself yeah, just yeah. eating up, eating up the dog energy. So we'll see what uh, happens. Us. We'll see what happens. Yeah. No, I'm just wondering like how that, you know, how it feels for you. I'm like so obsessed with puppies that like, like, it's just so visceral what seeing a puppy does to me. Like I walked by a puppy this morning and I was just like, <gasps> like, oh my God, like the feeling right, of right. like love. Like, right. and some people, and don't get me wrong, I do like children. They're, they're lovely. Um, but I don't have that feeling when like some people I think feel that when they see a baby or something, they become overcome with like emotion and love. Like I see a baby and I'm like, I'll walk right by a baby. I'll walk by 10 babies. I mean, I'm, if someone wants me to meet their baby, I'm like, yes, that baby's <laughs> cute. But a baby doesn't provoke any kind of a feeling in me, a stranger baby. Right. But a puppy, I'm like awash <laughs> with like joy and like enthusiasm. Yeah. I like lose my mind when I see puppies. And I saw this little tiny gray puppy this morning. Oh. It was just like so small. And it, you could see its little ribs because it was still very small and skinny. And it had little blue eyes oh. and a gray nose. And I almost <laughs> stole it. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to take this thing. It's funny. I feel that way with horses and deers. And if I, I go crazy, I'm embarrassed of myself. You I'm do just, love horses. I do. <laughs> I love to talk to them. I go crazy. You know what? You know what I think is funny when you see a horse, you go, hello, pussy, hello, pussolini. And it's always like, it's one of those things that like I'm used to. Names like, if someone else heard you calling a horse pussy, and I names, would just wonder what they would think. Names of endearment. Yeah, names of endearment. It's very funny. Anyway, so we had um, an intersection of, of food and grief. And, and then I, I found myself yesterday was a day that I had to work where I was out and I had a big work day and I had a break in between. And I could have done anything. I mean, I could have sat, I could have eaten. I cooked and I could tell I hadn't cooked for a week or two weeks. And I realized how much cooking helps me process. 
and I made tapenade. <laughs> mm, you told me that sounds so good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, there's something about, I mean, we've said this before, but turning your brain offline and just taking it to that kind of like, um, you know, you need to put your attention into cooking. You have to pay attention to the process, the Sensory. flavor, you're yeah. working, like every, you know. Um, and I felt the same way I started doing the pop-up again this week. And it was really helpful for me because I've just been so heartbroken lately ever since I got back from Italy and missing somebody a lot. And it's been really hard, like all consuming. And when I just kind of got back to um, like work and being in the kitchen, I like got, I would like get home and be like, oh, wow, I didn't think about this like all day, you know, right, or not right. all day, but since I went to work, you know, we need, and, we like, need that. Yeah. And it was really good. Um, and you know, cooking is, yeah, you just have to kind of pay attention. In my case, I have to like, you know, I am distracted because perhaps I burned myself or (laughs) I've like, you know, whatever, just like lifting such heavy stuff all day. But you know, cooking is definitely a wonderful way to, you know, just do something else. Sometimes like when you're really grieving, it just becomes like this, like, circular thinking you're like stuck in a Mm -hmm. feedback loop of pain and all this kind of stuff and so I think whether it be cooking or writing or running or doing anything else that feels like it can just be a little bit of a just like break it like pressing pause yeah as though you're watching like the same movie over and over Mm -hmm, again mm -hmm, you know what I mean just like press pause quickly doesn't mean you shouldn't feel those things or think about them or try to process them or understand them but just like pressing pause for a little bit actually so I have been um looking into and researching and trying to practice internal family systems therapy for the past couple weeks and one of the things that they mentioned which I thought was really interesting it's like about parts work and like accepting all the parts of yourself as being important and valuable and not pushing any of them away but the guy who's kind of the you know whatever the founder of it or the right Dick Schwartz he was saying in a podcast interview I listened to, he's like, you know, there are times when you want to also be able to enjoy yourself, you know? So it's not about like shutting it down, but maybe asking that part of yourself, like, hey, um, I need just like a quick break. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, can I come back to this later? Yeah. Good you way know? Of putting it up. Which exactly. is like a kind way of thinking about it. And exactly. he was saying, like, kind of like if you had a, ki- a kid and the kid was like, you know, needing your attention, but you were in the middle of doing something important, you wouldn't be like, you know, shut the fuck up, <laughs> leave me alone. You would just be the like, kindness. hey, like, right. you know what? I'm actually just really busy right now, but right. I really want to play with you. Like, just, I just need like an hour or two. And then how about in, in that time, then we'll we'll play. Like, yeah. and so um, I think that's like an interesting way of thinking about, you know, being in grief or like having a situation that's really heartbreaking Absolutely. or upsetting is like, just and that's where cooking can come in just being like hey I just need to like do this thing quickly I need a little break right and I'll be back with you to figure this this all out shortly absolutely you know I've mentioned this on air and actually talked about it this week several times with families that had lost that I always think there's like four or five important things you know one being distraction is actually okay you know it's okay if you can possibly to get distracted by a movie or something that happens great that's okay but we wouldn't want to just have distraction, right? And then, yeah. then we need a certain amount of what I've mentioned before called relax, which is where you actually quiet your mind to a point where it's it's really still, 
you know, we need a little bit of that, whether it's rest or meditation or, you know, some kind of really true quieting of the mind, you know, then we need release, you know, where we need to let out the energy that builds up from the experience that we're having um, of the processing and everything. You need some time when you let it all out. You can't just be processing and thinking in the movie like you talk about yeah. and then it doesn't come out of you. Otherwise it goes into you and it can be implosive, implode, you know. And then yeah. we need something that we do that has meaning, that has that's purposeful, that's, um, uh, you know, like you were saying, something that you do that you're really thinking about what you're doing, like your work. So we need always that an array of different things. It's not just one thing. But in the beginning, totally, you can't help it. The movie's playing over and over, like you say. Yeah, yeah. totally. Even if you can just press pause for five minutes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Even if it's just while you sleep, it's important to sometimes just like give yourself a little bit of a break. Yeah, we used to tell children um, in the bereavement program that I, I work with kids in hospice that we used to make these um, uh, boxes, worry boxes, and we put them, they'd make them and they put them by the side of their bed. And we say, okay, when you go to sleep, take all the things you're worried about, every single thing, and put it in the box and it'll still be there in the morning. You take it out, but now you can have a restful sleep. Yeah, that's really, that's what sometimes I don't really struggle too much with like insomnia, but if I ever do have like stress during the night and wake up, I can't sleep. That's what I've always tried to tell myself is like, you literally can't do anything about this now. So like not sleeping is not going to solve your problem. Like, so take the problem. It'll still be there in the morning when you wake up. You know what I mean? It's really the same thing, but it's just like important to remember sometimes like when you're torturing yourself. And, and when you're not, you know, the difference between pain and suffering. Well, Bobby, this was a great episode and it was so wonderful to get to chat with you and hear your perspectives and your wisdom and uh, just get to sit with you for a little bit and chat. And we miss you guys and we're excited to come back with some more episodes re-energized and reinvigorated. Um, if you would like to join us for an episode of the show, please reach out to us. Um, you can reach out to us at processing at heritageradionetwork.org or the best way to reach out is processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Just send us a DM. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear your listener letters. We'd love to have you as a guest and any feedback you want to give. And as always, uh, rating, reviewing, subscribing, um, to the show is huge. It makes such a difference in the, the reach we're able to have and, you know, having new and different listeners and continuing to be able to grow the show, which is our goal. So two things. One is that should we have our, our meal together? Yes, of course. I almost forgot about the tradition of the meal together. So this is a tiny meal. It's just the two of us. Okay. So I've already made what I'm going to serve. I made it yesterday while I was cooking in the middle of the day. <laughs> no, but I put so much love in it. No, it's not rude. I put You're so much love in it. You're just giving us leftovers? I'm just kidding. I I'm haven't kidding. served it I yet. I can't wait to try it. All right. So I made tapenade, and it's um, a green olive tapenade that has um, almonds and capers and zest and um, a little garlic and lemon and oil. Yummy. And I also made a feta cheese spread, and I made some pita chips. So we'll start with that, and what would you like to add to that? That's a great question. What would I like to add to that? Mm, I'm compelled to, if it's for the two of us, to have a delicious, because it's summer, just like a delicious um, lobster <gasps> dinner, which is <laughs> which is our favorite thing. So um, two big lobsters, some corn on the cob, um, some butter, 
and maybe some like boiled potatoes we can dip in the butter and lots of lemon maybe like a nice crunchy green green salad yay sounds great love it and a bottle of cold white wine okay and may i read a poem oh yeah of course please that sounds wonderful what a great way to end the show i'm gonna read a poem that from mary oliver from dog song okay where goes she now that dark little dog who used to come down the road barking and shining She's gone now from the world of particulars, the singular, the visible. So that deepest sting, sorrow. Still, is she gone from us entirely? Or is she a part of that other world everywhere? Come with me into the woods where spring is advancing as it does, no matter what, not being singular or particular, but one of the forever gifts and certainly visible. See how the violets are opening and the leaves unfolding and the streams gleaming and the birds singing. What does it make you think of? Her shining curls, her honest eyes, her beautiful bark. Oh, Mary Oliver. That's beautiful. Love that. Love her. So nice, Mom. That's so, so, love so, you, so Zaz. nice. I'm sorry about Bo. Love you, too. Bye, guys. We love you and take care of yourselves and each other. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.